Happy Easter to you. For those of you with us for the first time, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here at the Transit, as Blake said uh, in, our, in our welcome. We're glad to have you. And uh, um, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, down the center column of seats are a couple of Bibles on top of each other. You're uh, welcome to grab one of those. Use it as we are working our way through this passage of Scripture today. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you that one as our gift. Uh, and we're going to read just a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15 out loud together. I should look at the page number, look at the table of contents if you're unfamiliar with your Bible. Right there in the beginning, and like a normal book, it'll tell you where Corinthians is. Turn right to get to the big 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 23 together, and they'll also be on the screen. Let's read together out loud. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether be it by whether I was y'all reading with me, God, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Verse twelve. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, each, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for this day that you've, that you've made. And like the psalmist, we rejoice and we are glad in it. Lord, we thank you for Easter, that... Uh, on this day for 
2,000 years, your church, really the world, has celebrated the fact that the, the man that God sent into this world, really the, 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 the God himself, sent into this world to be born as a baby, grew up to be a man, walked our roads, lived our life, ate our food, died on a cross, and then on this day, he rose again. And so we say, hallelujah, what a Savior we have. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is not dead. He's alive, and we pray that you would uh, draw our hearts to this great moment in the history of our world that God has intervened in our life with this great moment, the resurrection of our Savior. And we pray that in the hearing of your word that you would uh, incline us to him, that you draw us to Jesus as our Savior, as our resurrected Lord, and that you change us. And we pray this in his name. Amen and amen. So it's Easter, and on Easter you talk about the resurrection, and uh, that's going to be my goal today. Uh, I'm, my goal is to explain what God accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about Christianity during this time of year. Uh, some would say that Christianity is just a set of ideas. Some would say it's, it's, it's simply a path, one path of many to spirituality. Some would even say it's just a list of morals, of things that we do to live a good life in hopes that there would be an afterlife after that, almost like um, Yoda and Darth Vader, you know, all those characters that sort of like are, are emanation, is that, what's the word, emanation or something like that? Uh, after they've died, they still exist like in, in hollow form kind of a way. That really is not what the resurrection is, and that's really not what Christianity is. Does, does Christianity influence in, in many ways all the things that I've just said? Uh, the, the, the world of politics and, and even the world of, of good morals, absolutely it does. But Christianity is mostly and importantly good news. Good news about a God that intervened our world and he came to, to save us. More than that, he came uh, to change us and make us more like him. And what I hope to do today is to draw you into that, to draw you into the story and of what that good news means, not only just for the world, but for you Personally, chances are in a small crowd like this, there are some that doubt that Jesus is God. There are some that doubt that Jesus actually did rise from a tomb 2,000 years ago. And uh, if you are a skeptic, a doubter, then maybe you've bought into the, 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 the line that Jesus was a good teacher, that he set a good example, that maybe uh, a bunch of followers who were zealots created this huge story about Jesus and uh, they did so because they wanted to have authority and, and control over a whole sect of people for many years to come. Perhaps you know a little bit about history and you know that, you know, the society 2000 years ago, especially society in the ancient Near East, were very superstitious people and they believed any and everything about most things. And so it would just make sense that this story would be made up and that we would um, encourage people to. Uh, organized their lives based upon the story of Jesus, a man who came and lived a good life and did some miracles, rose from the dead, such that uh, our lives would be like his. But I would encourage you, um, if you're a skeptic, you're not alone. There's several of us that are skeptics in this room, and you should be, because the Bible presents to us 
a level of, skept of skepticism. And we see that in Paul's words here. Paul actually is playing the devil's advocate in 1 Corinthians 15. He's, he's supposing um, the, the likelihood that Jesus actually did not rise from the grave. And then he comes to some conclusions based upon that uh, supposition. And he gives us basically five points. Five points uh, of what, I mean, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, what's the natural conclusion of that? And the first we see in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And so what, what we as Christians believe is that Jesus is both God and man, that he proved that he was God by being the only person to rise from the grave. Surely there have been people who have uh, come back to life from death, but there's no one that we know of that's come back from death and lived to not die again. Christians believe that. And so what Paul is saying is, but if, if that didn't happen, if Jesus didn't actually rise from death to never die again, then he's not really God. Consequently, what he as a preacher has, you know, his life's work of proclaiming the good news of, of a God that loved us to die and, and then would rise from the, from the grave. He says, what I'm saying as a preacher and what many of you believe is, is pointless if there's no resurrection. We see the second point in verse 15. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And so Paul says, if, if there's no resurrection, Christians are presenting a false witness. They're, they're liars. Christians are lying, and worse, they're misrepresenting God, saying that God has professed to have done something that he absolutely did not do. The third point is in verse 16 and 17. Paul says, Paul writes, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is a central point of, of Paul's argument here in this passage. And it's so important that he actually, I mean, he's repeating himself. This is the same thing he said in a couple of verses a couple verses up. He's saying, if Jesus wasn't raised, then your faith is futile, which, which basically means your faith is meaningless, worthless. In fact, you don't even have a faith. Your faith is, is nothing. And, and then he goes on to add something that's even worse. He says, then you're still under a curse. The curse that Adam entered when he did what God said not to do, eating of the tree of a knowledge of good and evil in the first book of the Bible in, in Genesis 2 and three. And, and what this does for us is, it, it, as a Christian, it violates everything that we know to be true because Christianity teaches that on the cross, this great exchange happened. That Jesus on the cross took my sin, my lust, my greed, my pride, my idolatry, all those things that I do against God's law and for which I should, I deserve a penalty, Jesus takes those upon himself on the cross, but then this miraculous thing happens. This incredible thing happens. I get Jesus' perfection. He gets my sin, and that sin puts him to death because that's God's punishment for sin, and I get all those things that are perfect and right 
and holy and righteous about Jesus. He dies. I get to live. The innocent one, Jesus, is treated as if he were guilty in a court of law so that those who are truly guilty get to go free. Now, if, if Jesus never rose from the dead, we have no idea whether or not God actually sanctioned the cross. We have no idea whether or not God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And consequently, and, and this is absolutely true, Jesus could just be a regular old lunatic like some of your friends. If, if the resurrection didn't happen, there is no forgiveness to be found in Jesus. Paul's fourth point is in verse 18. He says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So those of you that have loved ones that that loved, served God and his church for all their years and then died and hoped that they would see Jesus in eternity. What's he saying? Their hope was was nonetheless. They, They really didn't have a hope. Think of it this way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then. Jesus is not in a better place, and so you're not going to go, go to a better place, and all those who died in faith believing they would go to a better place aren't going to go to a better place. It, it really means there's, there's no heaven. This is all just wishful thinking. And this last argument is in verse 19. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so, and that's a sad thing to say, but it's absolutely true if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Paul says Christians should be pitied more than anybody else. Why is that? Because at the center of everything that we are taught from the scriptures in regards to our own faith is, is that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And the, the, the second command, so to speak, is this idea of we deny ourselves in this life so that we would gain all the things that we've denied in eternity. It, it's, it's more than that. It's deny ourselves in this life so that uh, we would benefit other people in this life. And they, and they would see the goodness of God in us and be drawn to him. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says stuff like, don't store up treasures on earth, instead be generous. He says, don't hoard your money, give it away, then you'll have treasures in heaven. Jesus says, exchange instant gratification in all those ways that we pursue it in this life for an eternal gratification in eternity with God himself. That's what Christians hold to be true and dear. But if Jesus was not raised and there is no heaven, I mean, that's all a lie. It's just a delusion, which is why we should be pitied, because we're keeping ourselves back from all kinds of worldly pleasures. Think about it. All those things that you love to do that that the Holy Spirit in you just sort of says, not luck. You don't need to do that because that's not befitting of the Lord that dwells within you. I mean, this is really why Paul says later in verse 32, If there's no resurrection, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, Christians are wrong. We deserve pity, we're pathetic, and we're throwing our lives away on a a lie. I mean, that's heavy, isn't it? 
I mean, good grief, Paul, gosh, he's got a creative imagination <laughs> about what could be if it wasn't. This is Paul's level of scrutiny. And I, and I, I bring all this up and I, and I dramatize it for you because this is the level of scrutiny that your, your Bible holds itself to. I mean, we can ask those kinds of questions of the Bible and expect to get answers back um, to all the questions, to many of the questions that we have. Uh, let me give you one more um, example. I mean, have you ever gotten a friend uh, that approaches you and they say, you know what, I really like that part about Christianity. I like what Jesus does here. I like what he says here. But, but then there's some stuff that I just don't like. I mean, I don't like the part about, you know, no sex outside of marriage. I don't like the tithing thing. I mean, there's some other things that y'all do that I just think are just ludicrous, especially in the 21st century. I mean, why are we like following all these rules for the sake of, a, you know, God that we can't see? But and, and here's, should, here's our reply to our friends that talk like that. We should say, well, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you're absolutely right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think that you have to do anything he, he's telling you to do. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, guess what? He's God. And if he's God, then the world revolves around him and everything that came out of his mouth we should be attentive to, and we should absolutely do. Here's the great thing about this text. There's a but. In Scripture, 80% of the time, when you see a but, not a but, but, you know what I'm talking about, right? B-U-T, a but. Uh, the word but. All right, when you see a but beginning a sentence, that doesn't even sound right. I got to get beyond this somehow. All right. When you see that word there beginning a sentence, 80% of the time, you need to like hone in on the Bible and see what's there because it's usually giving you a different perspective of everything that came before. And look what Paul says in verse 20. It's beautiful. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul, Paul negates everything he says. He's like, all right, so that was hypothetical. I was... But yeah, that's what we say in North Carolina. I'm fooling you. He says, you're a fool if you haven't looked at the evidence that's available to us and know from history and from fact and the testimony of your own hearts, the thing that God has put in you, that there's a God that lives and who, who rose. And he's calling you to himself. Paul says, Jesus is not in fact dead He's alive and he's the first of all those that he's calling to himself that will also rise with him to live in eternity with him. And then actually, you know, he starts telling us this argument way back in chapter um, in, uh, in verse three. Look at what verse three says. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive. Paul says, all right, I got something to tell you. I didn't make it up, and this is the most important thing that you will ever know to govern your whole entire life, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He's like, this is written down, and I'm not the one that wrote it down. It's in the Old Testament. Prophets of old have talked about it. Verse 4, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. I didn't make this up. It was absolute, it was, it was prophesied in the days of old through the prophets, and it's come to pass. Verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
the guy you saw running and then slowed down in the, in the video. Then to the 12, that's the other apostles. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the other apostles. And so these are some of Paul's arguments as to how and why Jesus rose from the grave. He's giving a historical argument for Jesus being the resurrected God-man. Let me, let me add a couple more. I'm not trying to outdo Paul, but if you're a skeptic here, this is what the testimony of Scripture says in regards to Jesus rising from the grave. First of all, the, we know that the tomb was empty. All right, that's like one of those, duh, because, I mean, that's not a refuted point. Everybody, the, the conspiracy is that the tomb was empty. This was acknowledged openly, but it still gets a lot of scrutiny because there's so many explanations. Well, where is Jesus? Exactly where is the body? We don't know. Thieves might have taken it. His followers might have taken it. But the point is, the, there was a body in the tomb. It was the body of the dead man, Jesus. And everybody, no one disputes the fact that the body is no longer in the tomb. Secondly, people started saying that they saw Jesus' body after he died. We could argue that it was a lie if only one or two people said, you know, I saw Jesus. He talked to me. We walked hand in hand. We ate some food together. That's not what Paul says. In fact, he didn't, Paul didn't have to say a thing because there were over 500 brothers that saw him at one time. Um, and, and here's what's interesting about that. This book of, uh, to the church at Corinth was written about 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. So around A.D. 55. So here's, here's what Paul is saying. All right, so Jesus just died. I mean, it's, it's let, almost just barely a generation ago. And there's hundreds of people that witnessed him being alive and then dying and then being alive again. And if you want to get the, I mean, like a true blue direct testimony from somebody, go talk to him. There's Cleopatra over there and Justin right there and Jehoshaphat right there. I mean, just go ask them and they'll tell you, yeah, I saw Jesus. I was surprised. They'll tell you if you saw them. You know, it would have been easy for the for the. The Jews of that day, the religious leaders and the, the, the Roman um, leadership to squelch Christianity. All they had to do was one of two things. Find the body, just produce the body, or shut all these people up that were saying they saw Jesus. But guess what? They couldn't do that. They could not debunk the story that Jesus actually lived, died, and lived again. Here's a third argument. In John's Gospel, we learned that the first person to see the resurrected Jesus was actually a woman. Her name was Mary. We talked about this, and we just finished a series in John where we spent a whole year just laying out John's gospel of, of Jesus being God. Um, and John spends a lot of time in, in John 20 um, just unfolding life after, the, after Jesus died and the scene at the tomb. And here's the deal about first century people. Women were marginalized. It was an alpha male. Women uh, aren't allowed to do anything kind of a society. 
women's, uh, a woman's testimony wasn't trusted. They were considered to be unreliable in their own uh, verbal witness of things. And so the, the thing that the apostles would not have done, I mean, they would have tried to cover this up if it didn't, if it actually happened. Because it wouldn't have been accepted rightly in the rest of the society they lived in. If a woman actually, um, no one would, would receive the testimony of a woman in that society. And so for a woman to be the first one that sees Jesus resurrected and to go and tell the apostles and they validate it, then God is saying something very important through that event. Here's what Tim Keller says. Actually, I'm going to give you a uh, Anglican N.T. Wright, which is a noted uh, theologian. He says, Mary is the apostle to the apostle. He's the first apostle. He's calling a woman an apostle. She's the first sent to see and believe that Jesus is risen. She's the first Christian. Then she goes and tells other followers. That was really what was depicted in that beginning video. Tim Keller, noted pastor and author uh, in Manhattan, says Jesus could have easily chosen anyone to be the first messenger to tell of the resurrection, but he chooses a woman. He chooses Mary. And this means Jesus specifically chose a woman, not a man. And if you know the story of Mary, she was one to whom Jesus had delivered from demonic oppression. In our day, we would call Mary a reformed mental ward patient. I mean, that was who Mary was. He didn't choose one of his closest friends. He didn't choose a leader in the community. Mary was not a pillar in any way. And so this is what Tim Keller surmises from that. How clearer could it be that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus just says, come, follow me. Here's a fourth argument. Even if you don't believe in the resurrection at all, you have to account for the historical fact that in first century life, Christianity, this small sect, exploded and became one of the largest faiths in all of the world. It became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire in just a couple of centuries. And how do you explain that other than the fact that these people who were radically changed by witnessing the, the, um, the death and the resurrection of Jesus um, went on and, and were changed by that, by the power of the Holy Spirit? And lastly, uh, and this is most intriguing to me, especially if you got a sibling. Um, in verse 7, Paul says, Jesus appeared to James. Any of y'all got a brother or sister? So check it out. Uh, if you've got a brother or sister, you grow up side by side. Sometimes you share the, the same room, you share the same clothes, you share the same you know, bathroom accessories. You know everything that's to know about that person, right? So if you got a sibling, here's one thing that you're not going to do. I idolized my brother. My brother was like, like he was awesome to me. But I know there's one thing I wouldn't do to my brother, as his little brother, I wouldn't bow down to him. Absolutely not. I mean, he could be the president of the United States. I, would, I wouldn't even call him president. But, but here's, here's what Paul's pointing out. Jesus appeared to his brother James, this is the same James that would go on to be a, be a pillar of the church in the book of Acts when it names the, 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 you know, the most prominent apostles. It always names Peter, James, and John. He's that James. He's the James that wrote the letter in the latter part of the New Testament. And this James who grew up with Jesus, I don't know what's going on with him. He says that Jesus is God. Because I have a brother, 
I don't need any other evidence other than that. James worshiped his brother. That takes it to a whole nother level. We could keep going. I could give you many other evidences. Um, but here's the point. None, none of these by themselves are slam dunks. They, they aren't. We could just, uh, I, could, I could speak truth and then someone could counter me with a different truth in regards to all these. But I think when you put all these together, hopefully what you're sensing is it becomes plausible that the resurrection actually did happen. There's a question we have to ask, though, because we have friends who aren't here in church with us today that are out having Easter brunch. They might even call it Easter. It's just a a normal Sunday for them. We have to ask this question. Why is it that we still have so many people that don't believe in the resurrection? I got a lot of excuses for you. I got a lot of, you know, data from a lot of big people who have big heads that, that write a lot. But I think it boils down to this. It's not because the facts don't line up. People don't believe in the resurrection. It's not because a lack of objective evidence. It's not because people aren't convinced that the Bible is true. It's not even, it's not even that they need to be convinced that the resurrection didn't happen. Here's what it is. It's, it's simple. We don't want to be told what to do. There's something about us as people that we don't want anybody with having authority over us except for us. We want to be able to choose to eat cake and ice cream, to go non-gluten whenever we want to, and to switch back and forth if necessary in the same minute. It's because as human beings, we don't want to be under anyone else's authority. We don't, we don't want a boss. We want to be our own boss. And here's the thing. If Jesus is God and God has revealed a way that shows us how we're supposed to live, it means We're not free to eat that cake and ice cream like we want to, whenever we want to. We're not free to do as we please. It means if Jesus is really God, we're supposed to do as he pleases. It means he's the boss and there are consequences for our disobedience. I would argue that's the reason why many people just dismiss the resurrection. And so really the task on Easter is not to persuade anybody that Jesus died and then rose again. 2,000 years ago. Here's the task of Easter. It's to, it's to prove to you that, that the resurrection really is good news. That it's good news for the world. That it's good news for you. I've got four things and then we're going to be done. There's four things that Paul sort of points to, not in, not in uh, sequence here, but four verses that I think are, are relevant for us to, to, to ponder over as we go about Easter and then um, respond to it. And the first is, The resurrection gives us pardon. It's tax time. And 60% of y'all in this room have already filled your taxes out. You perhaps have paid some money. You've gotten some money back. The other 40% of us, we got like three weeks. Y'all need to get on it. (laughs) Procrastinator. All right, I'm a procrastinator too. Um, suppose Suppose you got a letter in the mail from the IRS and it said that you owe thousands of dollars in back taxes and that's the reason why you're not procrastinating. Really, you got three options. Only three. You can pay it, just ante up, pay that money. You can say like, I ain't got no money. I'm like, I can't pay it. And if you don't have money to pay it, then you could blow it off. But then what's going to happen? They're going to find you. They're going to garnish your wage. And if 
they can't do that. They're going to find you and put you in jail. I mean, it's a felony. But what if this happened? Third option. What if miraculously a, a receipt showed up that you could like show the IRS that your debt has been paid in full? Mm. That's the resurrection. Check it out. That's the resurrection. Jesus has paid your debt in full. He did it on the cross. And the sign of the sign to you that the receipt is actually not a fake, it's good, is that Jesus died, but God woke him up. That's that's the receipt from the resurrection. Because there's going to be a judgment day. And on that day, the Bible informs us that everyone that walks the face of the earth is, is going to stand before the judge. It's Jesus. And he's going to judge us for what we've done in this life. And he's going to ask you, why in the world should I let you into my heaven? And you got two, you got two responses. You can say, well, look, look, I got some good clothes on. I look good today. I've done some good things. I helped out some homeless. I went and raped my neighbor's yard. And, and Jesus, in because he's God, is going to say, those are really good things, but it's not enough. Here's your second answer. I'm a wretched sinner. And I don't deserve the grace of God, but in mercy. God died on the cross through his son, Jesus, in my place for my sin. He saved me. I didn't do anything for it, but trust in him. And because of what God has done in Jesus, I, I'm saved. I'm reconciled to God. He's forgiven me. He's included me in my family. And oh, by the way, I got this receipt right here that says not only is Jesus alive, but I get out of jail free card. My debt's been paid. That, that really is what happens in the resurrection. This is. This is what Paul says. I spent a lot of time on that. A bit more time than I should have. Look at verse 8. This is what Paul says. He says, uh, I'm going to back up to verse 7. Then he appeared to James, my brother, then to all the apostles. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Here's what Paul is saying. He, I was so jealous for the Jewish for Jewish purity that I uh, I persecuted and even presented Christians who I thought were against the Jewish faith uh, for execution. You know what Paul was? Paul was a Jewish terrorist. I mean, he was a terror. I mean. He, he, we would cut, we would lump him in with Zarkawi and the uh, Bull Cowy brothers that did the the Belgian um, bombing last week. We would lump him into this group of people. But something unique happened to Paul, and it's re it's related in Acts chapter nine. He's on the way to Damascus. He has permission from the Jewish leaders to go and to to capture Christians who are in the synagogues and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be executed. But God intervenes. Before he could get to that, God, Jesus himself meets him on the road to Damascus. He comes in a bright light. 
He speaks to Paul, makes him blind. He saves Paul, converts him, tells Paul all that he'll do to, um, to sacrifice in this life for, for his cause and for the gospel. Paul says, I was, a, I was a religious terrorist and Jesus saved me. And this is what you can get out of this, folks. You can't out the love of God. I'm going to say it one more time. There's no sin that you can commit that's outside of the love of God. That's good news for you. And that's only because of the resurrection. I don't know what sins you have in your life. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what skeletons that you have in the closet that you don't want anybody to know about. I don't know those things that you will take with you closed mouth to the grave. I do know that we all have them in this room. Whatever those are, here's what the resurrection allows us to do. It allows us to bring those to Jesus and he'll, as, as Paul articulates in the book of Colossians, he says he'll nail them to the, 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 the cross of Jesus. He'll nail them to the cross. He'll put them to death so that you don't have to carry them anymore. And he'll raise you up to life with him. Second, the resurrection gives us power. Jesus not only forgives our past, and, and, and then it's up to us to figure the rest of life out. I mean, we try real hard so we can work our way up to, to being good people. And really, so many people think that's what Christianity is, that God saves me, he forgives me, and then I got to work hard to, to earn the rest of it, the rest of my life. But here's, here's what the resurrection gives us power to do. It gives us power to, to know that Jesus is with us in the moment, here and now, to help us live the life that we were meant to live. And that's what Paul says in verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's this huge backpack full of sins that I incur as a human being on the planet when I'm born. And I carry it around until I trust in Jesus for the salvation of my sins. And then Jesus relieves me of my sin debt. I take it off, I'm free, and he carries it for me. And that's when life truly begins. And so, Adam pulls me into this selfish separation with God. Jesus pulls me up into this reconciled, love-trust relationship where God is my father, I'm his beloved son or daughter. You enter in a covenant relationship with Jesus where he deposits the Holy Spirit in you, and that Holy Spirit draws you to Jesus so that you want to be all that Jesus called you to be. You want to be like him, formed in his image, doing the things that Jesus does on the earth or did on the earth. The Holy Spirit gives you personal, direct access to God the Father. He gives you the power to live the life, the Christian life, out loud. Not only that, you can talk to God when you're anxious, when you're struggling, when you're tempted, when you're not, when you're afraid, when you don't know what to do, don't know what to say. Jesus calls himself a very present help in our time of need. He says he'll always be with us. Jesus gives us resurrection power in the here and now. And lastly, verse three, uh, the, the third and fourth point are together. The resurrection gives us purpose and paradise. Have you ever given any thought to what the purpose of the Christian life is? Anytime you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're actually praying it. It's, it's, that, it's that we would reach into God's perfect life in the future and bring it down into the life where we live right now. We say that God's will will be made 
on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. You guys remember that? And so to do what Jesus did all the time is what God is calling us to. But he calls us to do it in the guise that we would do it in front of those that we are normally around and that they would benefit from it. That we would follow him and help other people to follow him. That we would participate with Jesus in his mission by renewing all things. And when we get to, we get to renew the atmosphere of our workplace and we get to renew the atmosphere of our neighborhoods through the relationships that we live in. We get to renew our own approach to sexuality and money and different cultures and classes and types and generations and ethnicities of groups of people that we might be ambassadors pulling the future world into the present as really a taste of heaven, an appetizer of heaven. We're supposed to be giving people around us a taste of what the, the resurrected life looks like. And God describes his future paradise. Look at verse 20 through 26. I'm almost done. This is what Paul says that gives us a taste of what life to come looks like, what a resurrected life looks like. I'll start in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's what the uh, John, the writer of Revelations, says that looks like there's going to be no more sin or suffering or sorrow or sickness or death. Jesus is going to come and wipe every tear away from our eye. All those bad things that we experienced in this life are going to pass away. Jesus says, behold, I've made all things new in the gospel of John. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that you might be where I am with me forever. Mm, like, come on. This is the promise of the resurrection. That we would receive pardon, power, purpose, and paradise. Here's how I'll conclude. You know, we, we all come from different walks of life. We're all at different points of our faith in this room. And you can do one of two things with the things that Scripture tells us about the resurrection. You can keep demanding life on your own, uh, living it your own way. But here's the, the testimony of Scripture. God loves you so much that he's given you the choice to reject him. But he also sent his son that you might receive him. And he offers you these immeasurable gifts and all you have to do is ask. Uh, one of my pastor friends said this just in passing, and it was just quotable. I'm quoting it to you right now. He says, we often come to church, and the last person we expect to meet is God. Isn't that something? But here he is. He's here with us today. He's been worshiping with us, singing over us songs of deliverance. And I would urge you, in the name of the resurrected Jesus, to let him in. Let's pray. Father, it's Easter, the day that we celebrate your, the resurrection of your Son, and we're grateful. Lord, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. We say hallelujah, he's not dead, he's risen.
I thank you for every heart here today. And Lord, we're, we're in all different places of our level of belief. God, would you draw all of us closer to a place where we know for sure that your God sent from heaven to live a life on this earth in our place, die for our sin, resurrect as a perfect sacrifice for us. And Lord, now you stand in, you're seated. Your work is finished. You're seated uh, to the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, cheering us on in this life as we live resurrected lives in your stead. For those here, Lord, that are struggling, that are skeptic, that are trying to figure this life out and what life with you might be, I pray that you would open their hearts to receive. God, that your words would be life to them, that today they would repent of their sins, receive Jesus as their Lord, and live a resurrected life as well. For the rest of us, God, we pray that uh, the life of the resurrection, a, a life uh, immersed in the life of God, would be not just an Easter uh, an Easter experience for us, but it would be every day. And that I've, you, as you've called us to, to purpose, that we would live such lives full of life around those who are unbelieving and unsure that they would see the resurrected God in us and would yearn for it. We pray that in your great name. Amen.